In this age of social media and 24-hour journalism, we've gotten used to seeing war on our screens. But the war in Tigray, Ethiopia, is not being televised. And so the snippets of horrors that do make it out have that much more of an impact. And a warning, this episode will include some graphic descriptions of violence, including rape. The video starts at the point where bodies are seen strewn across the village. Zakaria Zelalem is an Ethiopian journalist reporting on the war from Toronto, Canada. And I was able to count something like 40 dead bodies, and they were all of civilians. Some of the dead appeared to be very, very young, perhaps minors. And it's very gruesome, it's very disturbing. Unfortunately and tragically, it was very likely the first of uh, many to come. In the past few months, we've heard stories of gang rape, mass killings, and forced famine in the northern state of Tigray. Accusations which amount to a campaign of ethnic cleansing against Tigrayans. And because there's such limited access for journalists and NGOs in the region, the situation could be even worse than we know. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. You may remember Zacharias from the first time I spoke with him in November, right after the war in Tigray began. It's home to six million ethnic Tigrayans, a minority group in Ethiopia. At that time, our main question was, why is this happening? The breakout of military hostilities in Ethiopia that happened in early November was the result of a year or two years worth of worsening tensions between Ethiopia's federal government and the regional government in Tigray, led by the TPLF party. It used to be at the helm of Ethiopia's federal government for the past 27 years, from 1991 to 2018. It was a popular uprising in 2018 that finally saw the replacement of the TPLF administration with the one that's currently in power, run by Abiy Ahmed. The Ethiopian government had announced that elections scheduled for August would be postponed because of the COVID-19 outbreak. And the regional government in Tigray went ahead and held elections in defiance of the federal government. So the relationship between the Tigrayan leadership and Abiy Ahmed was already tense. Then, after that defiant election, the federal government cut ties with the region and suspended aid. The power struggle became more visible. And just days later, the two armies were at war in Tigray. It's been six months since all of that. But why is still at the root of my questions for Zacharias. When we last spoke, this conflict in Ethiopia was just a few weeks old. By the end of November, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed had announced that the government had completed its operation there. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has announced that the military operations in the northern Tigray province have been completed. The Ethiopian Prime Minister declared victory in the Tigray region after three weeks of intense fighting. Obviously, fast forward to today, we know that is not the case. Why has this war been so drawn out? So I guess when we spoke back then, much of the region was still under a total communications blackout, and it was very hard for journalists to authenticate the harrowing accounts that were coming out of the region. Six months into the war now, we are very well aware of the presence of not only Ethiopian troops, but also troops from neighboring Eritrea, and that 
the allied Eritrean and Ethiopian troops on the ground have committed horrific atrocities across the region, perhaps most notably the massacre of hundreds of people in the town of Aksum on November 28th. Massacre of 750 reported in Aksum, church complex Tigray, Ethiopia. Accounts have come from those who fled the town of Aksum and walked 200 kilometers to the regional capital, Mekeli. An Amnesty International report reveals that troops opened fire in the streets and conducted house-to-house -house raids in a massacre that may amount to a crime against humanity. As the months go by and as the death toll started to accumulate, I guess it's something like 4.5 million people that were in need of emergency aid across the entire Tigray region. As those numbers started to point to a very dire situation, the locals, Tigrayans on the ground, started to join the ranks of the Tigrayan Defense Forces. And they've been waging what was initially a very low-scale insurgency into something that's grown into a full-blown guerrilla outfit in the region. So this war is far from over, and it continues to cost the lives of civilians and the most defenseless women and children. So right now it's on par with some of the worst humanitarian catastrophes on the world. And uh, sadly, it does not seem to be coming to an end anytime soon. You touched on this, but one of the things that makes this crisis extra complicated is the geopolitics around it. So months into the offensive, Eritrea's government finally acknowledged that its troops are in Tigray, fighting alongside the Ethiopian army. Why is Eritrea involved? So Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed and Eritrea's President Isaias Afwerki both share a common loathing for the now-ousted former Tigrayan regional government. President Isaias's feud with the TPLF dates back decades, dates back to the 1998-2000 Ethiopian-Eritrean border war. So the two forces, the two national leaders, bonded on this and launched their joint assault on Tigray with the understanding that they'd be serving their common interests. The governments in neighboring Eritrea and Ethiopia were at odds for decades. But Prime Minister Abiy found common ground with his counterpart, Isaias Afwerki, in 2018. They signed a peace deal, and Abiy won the Nobel Peace Prize for it. And the two now have a common enemy in the ousted Tigrayan government, which sits on Ethiopia's border with Eritrea. Obviously, it's problematic when you bring in soldiers from a country like Eritrea, which has one of the worst human rights records in Africa, if not the world. And they're being held accountable to no one. So you essentially have the military forces of two countries deploying thousands of soldiers into the region with no mandate that includes safeguarding the dignity and well-being of the civilians on the ground. The involvement of Eritrean troops has definitely proved detrimental with regards to the human rights situation in Tigray. What do the various parties in this war want? Why are they still fighting? It isn't clear-cut on all sides. For instance, the Ethiopian government until now insists that it is only involved in post conflict mop-up operations and that it is winding down its fighting. But the evidence on the ground and the reports suggest that this is not true, whereas the Eritrean government insisted that its involvement was solely to protect its borders due to the threat that had suddenly emerged following the breakout of hostilities on November 4th. 
And on the side of the ousted regional government, the Tigrayan rebels, they will say that it's more a self-defense, a communal revolt against the massacres and atrocities being perpetuated against them by the combined Eritrean Ethiopian coalition forces. Um, but as you said earlier, the geopolitical situation is very complex, very messy, and everyone's reason for taking up arms varies. So the other thing that's changed since we last spoke is we're now seeing this growing list of allegations of crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and an impending humanitarian crisis. Can you walk me through those accusations? Who is being accused and who is doing the accusing? So all the factions of this war, all three distinct fighting factions, have committed gross human rights violations at one time or the other. But obviously, the majority of those that have been covered in our reporting and the majority of those that have been um, established or confirmed by human rights organizations are those that were carried out by the joint Ethiopian and Eritrean military factions on the ground. The atrocities Zakarias lists out span a wide range. There are mass killings in villages. You have a multitude of media outlets that have been able to geolocate and establish that killings took place in a number of towns and villages, especially and most particularly in rural areas of Tigray, where there'll be much smaller population concentrations and word of atrocities will not get out as quickly as it would be if the killing had taken place in a larger city like Makali or Aksum. Attacks on refugee camps. There were two UNHCR refugee camps in Tigray, which hosted something like 30,000 Eritrean refugees before the war. And these refugee camps were raised between December and January by Eritrean and Ethiopian soldiers, something that we were only able to establish via satellite imagery. Looting and destruction of heritage sites like mosques and monasteries that are centuries old. One of the oldest mosques in Africa, the Al-Najashi Mosque near the town of Wukro, was hit by heavy weaponry and looted. And there have been monasteries and churches that have been destroyed over the course of the past three or four months. It points to a systematic attempt to exterminate the Tigrayan identity. And along those same lines, there have been reports of sexual violence as a form of ethnic cleansing. Journalists have written about incidents where soldiers specifically said they were raping and maiming women to prevent them from bearing more Tigrayan children. As always, in any military conflict, it's women who suffer the most. The majority of the sexual violence has been perpetuated by Eritrean and Ethiopian soldiers, unfortunately, across the region. And something like at least 500 women raped within the first few months of the conflict. And those are only those who managed to reach health centers and report their rapes. We wanted to know more about this part of the story. So we reached out to Madiha Raza. I'm the Senior Global Communications Officer for Africa and Yemen at the International Rescue Committee. Madiha went to Tigray and some of the refugee camps in neighboring Sudan to meet with women and girls impacted by the war. In Tigray itself, I spoke to multiple women who gave many accounts of what they'd seen and witnessed as they'd been displaced on their journeys to the displacement camps, which is where I met them. All of them, the men and the women, told me about multiple accounts of gang rape. Women are being exploited, especially in the rural areas. For example, there are a lot of coffee and tea houses where 
the girls or the women that are serving the tea would often uh, be taken away at night. And we've found that women are having to engage in sexually exploitative relationships in order to survive. So having to trade sex for small amounts of cash or shelter or food just to survive and feed their families. So it really is quite a tragic and harrowing situation. And to make matters worse, these survivors of sexual violence have very few places to turn to for physical and psychological support. So across the conflict, reports have said that approximately 71% of hospitals and medical facilities in the Tigray region have been partially or completely damaged. As you can imagine, survivors of sexual violence need much more than just psychological care. They need emergency contraceptives or HIV pills or pills that prevent other sexually transmitted diseases. And that's in addition to any other violence they may have faced, you know, cuts and bruises. So physical care as well as psychological care. When I was in Tigray, everyone had been telling me that all the medical facilities and all the pharmacies, everything had been completely looted during the crisis. So even if they were operational, there weren't the resources available to be able to actually treat or assist these women that have been so impacted in such a tragic way. Madiha says this combination of factors, the violence and also the barriers to care afterwards, point to one very disturbing but clear conclusion. The fact that sexual violence is being used as a weapon of war across the conflict is almost indisputable. The fact that women are getting gang raped, comments that are being made to the women that are, are being attacked and their families show that this is a systematic abuse of, of power and definitely being used as a weapon of war. But when it comes to atrocities, Zakarias thinks there's even more we don't know about. All factions in the fighting have committed atrocities So this is something that we're going to continue talking about within the months to come because as people are able to leave Ethiopia and smuggle footage, smuggle evidence of these crimes into neighboring Sudan, for instance, I feel that unfortunately a lot more shocking, graphic and horrific evidence of what has played out in Tigray is going to be made available for the public in the very near future. You have seen some of that smuggled video yourself. You wrote a piece in The Telegraph on one of those videos that's quite gruesome. Can you describe generally what you saw in the videos? The video that I was able to obtain was filmed outside of a monastery named Debra Abbai. It's a Christian shrine. There have been accounts that There had been fighting in that area before the events in the video took place. But in the end, soldiers took over the village in question. In the video, Zakaria saw dozens of dead bodies of all ages lying outside their homes. And he says you hear Ethiopian soldiers discussing the killings. The Ethiopian soldiers who had carried out the atrocity made it very clear in the tone that they were using, with the languages... They made it very clear who they were, what their identity was. For Ethiopians who saw the video, there was no doubt that these were Ethiopian soldiers. They also made no attempt to hide that they had committed an atrocity. The Ethiopian soldiers are seen discussing whether or not to kill one or two of the survivors seen in the video trying to limp away. That's heavy. Yeah. Prime Minister Abiy 
himself has acknowledged that atrocities have been committed in Tigray. There is evidence of wrongdoing, like raping women and looting of property. Any soldier and member of the National Defense Force who raped our Tigrayan sisters or looted property will be held accountable by law. But he also blamed the, quote, propaganda of exaggeration, unquote. Do you think that is a legitimate point? What do you think he meant by that? If we're going to talk about media outlets stretching things one way or another, as the prime minister alleges, if that were true, I think it would be the Ethiopian government, which would be at fault for its hindering access to the region for journalists, human rights organizations, even aid workers for months. So all sorts of reports that came from the region were very difficult to establish as fact or as fabrication. And this is the Ethiopian government's doing. It prohibited access to the region. Unfortunately, since the reopening of the region, those who have been able to go on the ground, go to the areas, speak with the locals on the ground, head to the sites of reported atrocities, have only been able to further establish that atrocities had occurred. The Ethiopian government always insists that there's some sort of media campaign against it. It couldn't be further from the truth. It's a dire situation on the ground. So the United Nations has spoken out about the atrocities being committed in Tigray. It's agreed to launch an investigation. The United Nations saying that the conflict in northern Ethiopia's Tigray region is far from over. The UN says the vast majority of the region's six million people have no access to humanitarian assistance. Does an announcement of that, does the idea that an investigation is coming actually bring hope to the people on the ground? And will that be enough for this conflict to eventually end? Well, for a significant majority of Tigrayans, the involvement of the Ethiopian government-run Ethiopian Human Rights Commission in a joint investigation alongside the UN is highly problematic. So the consensus amongst, amongst Tigrayans is that the UN should conduct any human rights or war crimes investigations by itself, or at the least with another independent, international, credible entity. But Zakarias says he still hopes this investigation will be a step towards accountability. If it's going to be a credible investigation, they will definitely have to shine a light on countless atrocities that have been covered by The Telegraph, by Al Jazeera, by scores of other outlets from around the world. I imagine it will push to hold a number of the pro-Ethiopian and pro-Eritrean military commanders on the ground accountable for some of the killings. Whether that will lead to the end of the conflict is a whole other discussion. Zakaria says he thinks the only way this conflict ends is with an effective dialogue between the ousted Tigrayan government and Abiy's administration. But he says that feels far off now, since the National Council of Ministers on May 1st officially designated that ousted group as a terrorist organization. So what this does obviously is diminish the already very minute chance that there could have been dialogue between the two. And at this point, I think observers will look to rely on the international community and diplomats to really urge the two sides to solve this thing via roundtable talks, because as it is, this does not look like it's going to be resolved uh, by force anytime soon. 
So what has it been like for you reporting from afar on this conflict in a country where many of your family members live? I'm lucky to say that I have no family personally affected by the conflict. And I do not hail from Tigray itself. However, very many of my friends do. A lot of the people who I speak with, who I interview in the course of my reporting, have lost family members, friends, have not spoken to their parents, their siblings for months. What they've experienced, it's impossible for me to put in words. And I'm very grateful to them. It's because it's through them and it's because of their trusting in me that I've been able to do my job. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilbe with Dina Kisfei, Alexandra Locke, Nagin Auliai, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. We'll be back.